And if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it to Isaiah 56. If you're using a pew Bible, that's 1149, Isaiah 56. We've been going through the prophet Isaiah in the series, The Gospel Through the Bible, and talking about how the good news about Jesus and Jesus himself is on every page of the Bible, not just the ones in the New Testament, and that we can see the Savior himself and the dynamic by which he saves all through the Bible, and we're looking at it in Isaiah right now. So let's read Isaiah chapter 56. I'm going to read the first eight verses. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, the man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people, and let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me, and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, who love the name of the Lord, and to love the name of the Lord and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. Um, I'm not sure about you guys, but I don't really watch much of the Olympics. My kids kind of like watching them, and the, the event in the Olympics that I like watching the least is figure skating. <laughs> Especially women's figure skating. And of anything in the Olympics I like watching the absolute least, it is the women's figure skating short program, which was on last night, and my girls wanted to watch. So we did. Um, one of the members of the American team is this girl, Ashley Winger, and um, they like did this whole story on her before she got up there, and she gets up to, like, to get ready to skate, and I'm like, I turned to my wife, I was like, this is why I hate watching women's figure skating, because, like, I'm just so nervous right now, and I'm like, nothing good can happen. Nothing good can happen. If she skates flawlessly, she'll be basically as good as that lovely woman from Canada that just went, and I will not be able to discern any difference between the two of them, and if she falls or something, then her whole life is basically ruined, right? I mean, it's just, why are we doing this to ourselves, you know? Let's just throw some javelins and go home, right? And so part of the, like, the deal with this is that um, you, I, we, were li I was, we were listening to this girl's story, and here's the thing about her story, right? So she was like, she's a pretty good skater, and then she like changed cities and got a new coach, and then became like this really good skater, won two championships, and then right before the Olympics, she skated in Boston, right? And so apparently it's like this big deal. It's like the whatever championships, whatever. So she's skating in Boston, and she falls, okay? She falls, which happens when you ice skate. Okay? Apparently people don't know this anymore. Happens all the time. All right? And so after this, they selected the, the U.S. team, and they selected her to be on the team. Okay? In order to make this okay that she was selected, because she fell one time, the, the lady who's the chair of the committee had to go out in front of microphones and basically say, yes, we selected this girl to be on the team. Here's why. She's the most qualified skater in America. Right? Like, this is a girl who just, just won two championships. Okay? She just won two championships. She fell one time. Right? And all of a sudden, you're like, she's on the Olympic team? Are you kidding me? She should be carrying those little plastic skate covers. You know? And, like, it just— And so it's, it reminds me of this passage because 
When I read this passage and I think about what we've been talking about over the last four or five weeks, right? Isaiah 53, the servant, the Messiah, the Savior Jesus comes and dies to make a new people, right? In chapter 54, God says there's going to be this new people, right? It's not going to be biological, a racial people, but the tent is going to, the barren woman is going to have more children than the woman who has had children. That is, the non-biological expansion of God's people is going to just go off the map. God's saying, I'm going to make this whole new people for myself. Chapter 55 is this invitation. Anybody who wants to come, if you're hungry, here's, there's good news, there's food. If you're thirsty, here's the good news, there's water. Wine, just come and, and take it and have it. And I'm going to make this people, he says, that he's going to, he says in um, Isaiah 55, he says that I will make an everlasting covenant with them. And, be, and people will come to you. Why? Because your God has, and the, the phrase is, endowed you with splendor, right? Which is not just that you're pretty on the inside and that your mommy can see it. Splendor is the idea that there is beauty that everybody else can see. Right? That God, God is going to put a beauty in this people so profound and so intense that it can be seen on the outside and people will actually be drawn to it because it's so beautiful. Right? And then you get to chapter 56. And because God is speaking to human beings, there's a couple things that have to be handled. Because you can make the best invitation to humans and they're still not going to do it because they're humans. And so he, he deals with something that will destroy everything, which is essentially our, our, de- our deepest insecurities, okay? And our deepest insecurities will, will do one thing. It'll cause us to cop out on something. And the two deepest insecurities this passage specifically talks about are our insecurity about our ultimate significance and our deep security about ultimate belonging. And if those two things don't get handled— the level of insecurity is so palpable that there is no splendor, right? What's the one of the most unattractive qualities that you've ever seen in a person, right? Cruelty is up there, you know, if you're going to write your top five. But in my top three, in my top three is profound insecurity, especially insecurity that the person doesn't seem to be aware of. And insecurity about your ultimate significance and insecurity about your real belonging, though it may be an unnamed fear, will produce the most unattractive kind of insecurity in us individually and as a community and will destroy the kind of splendor God seeks to create in a people that really believe the gospel. And so here's the thing. Our lives together and our lives generally should not be like figure skating, right? We should not be the kind of people that are terrified one fall and everything that we've earned, everything that we've done, everything that makes our life significance is gone and everybody who was our fan before is gone, moved on to the next girl who jumps a little higher and spins a little faster, right? So there's three things— to talk about in this passage related to that. Sorry, I can't do all that stuff. One is, in the, in the first verses, and that is that God basically actually requires real faith. Meaning, quitting isn't actually an option. Right? He says, listen, to the one that trusts me, to the one that holds fast to my covenant, I will. Right? It's very clear. There has to be real faith. And, and you might say, well, okay, but why does that matter here? Here's why. Because, because insecurity, even if it comes from victimhood, is not a sufficient reason in the gospel to dump out on faith. Let me give you one example from Matthew 25. In Matthew 25, there's this story about three servants that serve a wealthy landlord. He's leaving, so he gives them money to invest. One guy, he gives— $10,000, let's just say $1,000. $10,000, one guy, $5,000, one guy, $1,000. And he, they all, the two invest it, and they double their money, and the other guy buries it, right? And then the master comes back, and he, he settles up with them, and the first guy says his thing, is a like, good job. The second is, good job. He gets to the third guy, and the third guy's like, listen, you're really hard to please, and you're actually a pretty angry person. And so, because I didn't want to lose it, I actually just buried it, and now I dug it up, and here you go. So here's, you could have your money back. And, 
And so you might say, well, that's exactly, I mean, that's what happens. When you're, you've got the least skills, you're the most disempowered person, you know, you're the, you're the victim of the group. Surely if you say, well, I didn't have my, any resources, so I didn't do anything. Surely that's okay, right? But you know what happens in the parable? The master says, listen, so you knew I get angry. What do you think's about to happen right now? Right? He gets really angry. He's like, look, you didn't even take it to the bank and get interest. Like, you did nothing. And you even said, you knew. And what do you think is going to bother me more? That you lost it or that you did nothing? Right? So he takes the money, right? And in one of the versions of the story, you know, who's, you know, who's he give it to? This is participatory. The guy with 10, who's now got 20. Well, it's, in that one, it's five, three, and one, I think. So they're like, so actually, somebody in that story says, he's already got 10, right? I don't care. Give it to him. And the whole layout of the story is meant to offend our more delicate and compassionate sensibilities. It's meant to offend that. It's meant to say, oh, you feel bad for him, don't you? That's great. You know, it's good to, it's good to be compassionate. Not in this way. Not in this way. Right? And you can see this, that the way it starts is what kind of, what kind of community is going to have the kind of splendor, the kind of inherent beauty that the nations will be drawn toward? Right? And the first line says this, right? Justice. Hold on. If you look in the first verse, it says, maintain justice and do what is right. Which is very easy to read that and go, okay, so we're supposed to earn our salvation. I get it. Well, the whole Bible says that's not true, actually. Right? And if you read through the passage, it, God actually says very clearly, to the one who believes in and trusts in my covenant, that is God's agreement with us that he does the saving. And if you look at the language of the relationship between God and the person throughout this whole passage, it's not very works-based. It's very relationally-based. Look at the metaphors, right? Somebody who has bound himself to the Lord, tied together in a relationship, that chooses what pleases me, who holds fast to my covenant. That's the agreement of relationship with each other, right? Binds themselves to the Lord and serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him. And then there's one that keeps kind of coming up again and again, which may have caught your attention a little bit when we were reading this. The Sabbath. Did you notice that comes up like three times? You're like, Sabbath. This is going to be a sermon on coming to church. I just know it, right? Why is the Sabbath such an important part of this passage, right? Why when he says, this is what I'll do to anybody who's part of my covenant, and here's basically the test line I'm going to give for whether or not you're part of my covenant, they keep the Sabbath. I mean, think about it. The Ten Commandments, is that your go-to commandment? Like, if you're God and you're like, all right, I'm going to use one command to kind of summarize the whole thing, right? Would you pick the, the Sabbath one? Right? I mean, maybe not having idols, right? Not using the Lord's name in vain. There's a lot of name of the name of the Son. There's lots of name metaphor in this passage. So not misusing the Lord's name, that would have been a good one, right? Or like, clearly adultery is better than not, worse than not going to church, I would think. Or murder is in there, right? Or stealing, or coveting. I mean, Sabbath is like the last one you would— I mean, really? The Sabbath? That's the one, right? But it is the one, and interestingly enough, it's the commandment that the most is said about in the Ten Commandments themselves. It's the longest commandment, and it's the one that has the clearest theological justification for why it's so important. And it has everything to do with justice and idolatry. Right? So there's two places in the Torah where this commandment is given. So let's look at them real quick. Real quack. That's good, right? Okay. <clears throat> Exodus 28 to 11. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or your maidservant, nor your animals or your alien within your gates. For, right, what is the word for? For. Right? Here's the reason. In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the logic here is <clears throat> God worked and then he stopped. <clears throat> and he set up the dynamic for how we're to work and rest. 
And on that basis, we are meant to mirror that because we belong to God, we aren't God. And so, what, is it, what does it tell you about yourself if you can't rest? Right? It tells you two things. Now think about this. If we're going to talk about justice in its most basic sense, if you're going to have a just society, you know, what are a couple of things that you would expect to not be there? Right? Well, one would be the misuse of power, usurpation, people taking power that doesn't belong to them. Right? That's a fundamental attribute of justice. And the second would be that, that a kind of bone-crunching slavery would not exist, right? That po- people who have power don't misuse it in the people they have authority over, right? That's basically the two dynamics of power, right? People aren't taking power that doesn't belong to them, and people aren't using power in a way that doesn't belong to them, right? That's, if that happened, you'd have justice in theory, right? So this passage is talking about the first one of those, usurpation. Because, you see, if you can't rest, who do you think you are? And who do you not trust to give you what you need? Why do you think you have to work seven days? Right? It's a rejection of the idea of divine abundance that God can provide for you. God can provide for you in six days of work, which isn't a full weekend, by the way. But, There is one day to rest, and it demonstrates that you think God is God and not you. And if you can't rest, and if I can't rest, what does that say? We are slaves to our own idolatry. We've usurped the place of God, we're terrible at it, so we have to work seven days to make it work. And we're supposed to rest, because we're supposed to trust in the one who made an agreement with us, that he created us, And he can take care of us if we trust and follow him. Right? And then look at the second one in Deuteronomy. It's the only commandment that has a theological justification that changes. That changes. Right? Here's the second time the law is given. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. As the Lord your God has commanded you, six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. A ceasing, right? On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, or your manservant or your maidservant, or your, or your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor the alien within your gates. Now there's a new clause. This wasn't in the last one. So that, so that your manservant and maidservant may rest as you do. Do you see the change in emphasis in the second giving of the commandment? There's a specific clause given before the theological justification to point to justice for people that are disempowered in relationship to the Sabbath. This is different. It's the same commandment. It's just being applied differently, right? Now a different justification. Verse 15. Remember, we're not pointing back to creation now. We're pointing back to something else. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. So how did you get into your position of power to be a blessed nation that would have manservants and maidservants under you? How did that happen? Because you were enslaved manservants and maidservants, and God, not because you're good and not because you're powerful, through his mighty outstretched arm. You see the point there? The point is you didn't do it. The point is God did it. God took you from where you were a slave and made you your own nation. Now you have manservants and maidservants, people who work under you and labor for your prosperity. He said, now, now that that's the case, here's what you need to remember. That was you. And so just as I rescued you from slavery, God says, so you shouldn't be a slave driver. Right? That's, what it, that's exactly what it says, Right? Meaning, so, okay, obviously we don't have a lot of slaves right now as Americans, but what's the difference between that and, like, driving your employees to death? What's the difference? What's the difference between that and paying literally the least you possibly can? Listen, I understand, I understand we all have to be economic, uh, economically competitive. I hate setting wages. It's one of my least favorite parts of my job. But this matters. This doesn't necessarily tell you what the number is. It doesn't. You've got to work that out yourself. This is the principle. The principle is we don't suck everything out of people we can. 
We don't take everything we have the power to take. And there's one line God draws perfectly objectively. They get at least a whole day. Even the goats. Do you notice that in both cases, the animals are even covered? You can't make your kids work. You can't make your servants work. You can't even make your animals work. Nothing. And here, it's a tenet of, of justice. You can't squeeze people, right? So do you see how this would be related to maintain justice and do what is right? Step number one, don't try to be God and don't be a slave driver. Don't treat people the way God didn't treat you and do for people what God did for you. Otherwise, you've completely forgotten who? God and what? His greatest action of your salvation. Christians ought to act in the logic of the gospel. This is why I've been talking about the gospel for three and a half years. Because it's not so much about the commandments of Scripture. The commandments of Scripture are all right. We should obey them all. Because if you look at their logic, they all have gospel logic. But in addition to the commands that are in Scripture, there are a thousand applications of God treated you this way, therefore, how should you then live? Right? And... God demands that real faith come through. That's why he gives real—he doesn't just say, say that you agree, say that you believe. No, he says, bind yourself to me. Keep the covenant that I gave you. Keep the Sabbath. Maintain justice. Do what is right. Keep your hands from evil. Are all those—are all those countable regulations by which you have to achieve something to get to heaven? Or no, they're not. But they are all demarcations of real faith. All of them. Right? Okay. I'm saying right a lot again. I'm sorry about that. Number two. God promises significance. There's two promises, right? And in uh, 56, it says this. I know you were hoping to talk about eunuchs today. Um, Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. We'll get back. That gets answered in the next set of verses about belonging. And then it says this, And let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. So that's the introduction to the two categories. Now, he's going to deal with the second one first. For, this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs, who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me, and hold fast to my covenant. You see, those three clauses are describing real faith. Not just, oh, I like Jesus. Real faith, okay? To them, I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. Now, a little bit on eunuchs, right? In the ancient world, almost every kingdom had them, right? Which is either, it's usually, they were usually all males, and they were usually men who were at least castrated, and, and, and actually in quite a number of cases, fully emasculated, okay? And there were two reasons, generally speaking, people would become eunuchs. One is personal tragedy. They were a slave, they didn't get a choice, they got made into a eunuch. The second is, they chose to become a eunuch because the place of a eunuch was within the royal circles. The whole reason to make somebody a eunuch is so they couldn't take possession of one of the royal women and usurp the throne. It's the whole reason to have a eunuch, right? They, they, a eunuch can't be a usurper, which is kind of interesting because if you look at world history, there were eunuch usurpers, right? But it's much more likely, much more unlikely. Israel, as far as we know when you read the Bible, didn't have any. Making eunuchs was not like a Israel thing. In the New Testament, there's only one eunuch. Where, where's he from? Ethiopia. And was he royal? Yep, it says he was in charge of all the money of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. Right? Because that's what eunuchs tended to be. Now, when you look at the biblical context, the Bible from beginning all the way to the end could not be more pro-family. What I mean by that is um, men marrying women and having children and them marrying and having children, and there being an expansion of the biological life of human beings as they fill the earth and subdue it. The Bible is extremely pro-family in that sense, okay? Now, here's the other thing that's interesting about Christianity. Christianity is also the only major religion in the world that scriptures elevate singleness to the same level. Now you're like, wait a second, how how is that possible? If they're both the same, then how can it be pro-family? Here's why. Because the the Bible can make a distinction between something that is going to be normative, that is, the majority of people are going to do it, 
The Bible has a category for a minority of people are going to do this, and it's just as important as the thing the majority are going to do. Philosophically, it's this, this distinction between normal and abnormal, and normative versus non-normative, okay? So, for example, in the church, right, I'm the, I'm the main preacher, right? So I have a non-normative position. It's, I'm in the vast minority, right, as a preacher. But is my job less important than yours because you're in the majority? It's not, right? It's, I have a minority job, but it's just as important as anybody else's, right? Same thing with the person working in the children's ministry. Does the, do the majority of people work in the children's ministry? No, right? But are they less important because they work—no. It's normative, non-normative, you see? And in the Bible, single people are non-normative— Right? They're not going to be the majority. The majority of people, in order to pass on human life, are going to have to get married, form families, and have children. That's going to be normative. The non-normative group of single people are just as important. There are certain advantages to that life, and if those people marshal those for the glory of God, Paul says it can be even more effective in certain ways. Right? If you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. However, the Bible is really pro-family and very pro-procreation. Okay, it just is. Sorry about that. Um, <clears throat> now, here's the thing. Whenever you're pro-family, that could be really good because you could be in line with the Bible. Here's the other thing. It's its own idolatry. Everything good can be idolatry, right? And um, there is a certain idolatry to family. You see this in parenting all the time. Why won't parents discipline their kids, right? They're terrified that their kid won't turn out right because their kid's an idol, Right? Now, sometimes it's because they have a silly view of psychology, but it's one of the reasons, right? Or why do they give them everything? Or why do, they, why do we treat our kids—why why do, why do so many marriages fail when a kid goes to school? And the nest is empty, right? They were the center of the solar system. You lose the sun, you lose the solar system, right? Family has its own idolatry, and you see, God can say to us, because I have given you life— and because that life comes out of an inner relationship between myself and the people I've created, so you form families that mirror that with a husband and a wife that creates a sub-society that can then be a little kingdom in my—so I've given you life, therefore you can pass on life. But your significance doesn't come from the, what you pass life onto. Your significance comes from the one who gave you the life. You see, you, we get it just reversed, right? We give our children life, and then we suck the life out of them. Because they're our significance. You see? And so what, what God is saying here is he's talking into a culture that is absolutely pro-family. All of your significance comes from your children. They will take over your family business. They will remember you. They will take care of you when you're old. They will, they will, they will, they will. They are everything you will ever be. And in that context, he says, to those of you who are eunuchs, who will bind yourself to me, The eunuchs are going to be foreigners, because Israel doesn't really have eunuchs. And they're going to be deformed in relationship to what Leviticus and Exodus says. So they can't go in the temple because they're foreigners, and they can't go in the temple not only because they're not priests, but even if a priest had any kind of physical deformity, they couldn't go in the temple, right? So what does God say? He says, I'm going to give you a memorial and a name in my temple, and even says, within my walls. So it's on the inside of the temple— and God is going to put a name for that eunuch. And he's going to say, it is going to be a, a memorial, an everlasting name that is better than sons and daughters. Right? Do you see the whole reversal of that idolatry? A whole reversal of the idea of significance. You see what he's doing? And so here's the reality. All of us have an issue with this. And for most of us, it's an unnamed thing. But there are all kinds of significances that we are hoping can produce for us an ultimate significance, an ultimate grounding of the worthwhileness of our life. And it's very difficult to produce that. And that is exactly what God is offering in the crucified and risen Messiah, Jesus. That he can settle this for you forever. You will not have to be insecure anymore about your ultimate significance. And if you don't get this settled, no matter how good your coping mechanisms are, it will come out. And it will come out in the most ugly ways, and it will come out between us, and there will be no splendor. One of the characters in the Old Testament, Absalom—I'm well, going to skip this. I don't have time for this. Let's keep going. 
Okay. There's three things that I think is, are important to take from this verse in 56.5. That is, um, he says, I'll give you a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name. And if you think about the last chapters, he's going to make an everlasting covenant that's going to be an everlasting sign. And then he says to these people, I will give you in that an everlasting name. It's as big a promise as he makes anywhere in these passages. And then he says, that will not be cut off, which is at least meaningful in three ways. One is, to be cut off from the covenant was the language all the way through the Torah. That you are part of the people of Israel, you're part of the people of God, but if you sinned against the covenant grievously enough, you had to be cut off, it said. Separated from the people. Not belonging, right? And so God says, when you get this name, when your significance is in here with me, you also belong. Right? The second is obviously a pun on being a eunuch. Right? I will give him an everlasting name that will not be cut off. Right? And then thirdly, it's a reference to a couple chapters earlier where it says that somebody else was cut off. Right? In chapter 53, do you remember that language? By oppression and judgment, this is the Messiah, right? The servant, Jesus. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. Right? He was cut off without any offspring. But what does he take for himself? He'll take—he's he, going to see his offspring and prolong his days. He's going to have a name. But his name is going to be the people he gathers, including the eunuchs who have no name. He will give them a name because they will be his children. They don't have to have children to be ultimately significant. They can be his children. And be ultimately significant. Now, one of the reasons that this is really important is because this is the, one of the areas where there actually isn't a secular alternative. Right? One of the places, there's a lot of things in modern, secularized, functionally atheistic culture <clears throat> where if you have a problem, they really can solve it. Right? And you're actually in some ways better off going to, their, to, to the solution of the secular culture than to come to the church. Right? For example, if you have cancer— What's going to be the first thought that comes to your mind? You're probably going to go to the hospital, right? And it's probably because we don't really believe— we don't believe like we might in healing. We don't pray for it like we could, and that's probably a problem with us. But there are certain things like— like when people need roads, they don't come to us, right? They don't. I don't know why. We never had anybody come to the office and say, we're thinking about this new road, right? And that's because— Secularity, the, the culture of technology and modernity that we live in, has produced things that are God-given. There's a lot of things about the secular culture that are wonderful, right? They've, they've brought out the creative energy, the true potential of God's creation and God's creativity that he's given human beings. Those have been applied and brought out wonderful things. And there are many answers in the secular world that are ultimately from God's creative energy that come out of our humanity that are wonderful, it's not, a, it's not either or. It's not a, well, we don't like that. But here's one of the answers that it cannot produce when it forgets God. And that is the answer to significance. And not just general significance or sort of interests, but ultimate grounding significance. This is, Tim Keller says this. What all Western secular culture believes is that we actually are just a wave upon the sand. Ultimately, no matter what kind of life you live, will end, will end and will be forgotten. You really aren't ultimately significant. No one will ultimately remember even the statistics you represent. That's encouraging, isn't it? Right? One of the, there's a song I like by a band called Thrice. It, the song Destination starts like this. The towers that shoulder your pride, the words you've written in stone, sand will cover them. Sand will cover you. The streets that suffer your name, your very flesh and your bones, sand will cover them, and sand will cover you. Right? But here's part of the problem with that. The secular answer tends to be this. You don't have to mean something as long as something means something to you, right? You don't have to objectively have ultimate significance so long as you find significance. You don't have to be the, the child of God if you like skiing. You see, I, and I'm not making fun of this idea. This is a, is a perfectly co cogent idea. Why do you have to mean something? You die and rot in your grave. That's all there ever was. But you liked figure skating. What does it matter? You liked it. You enjoyed it, right? So that's your significance. Here's the problem. That's not what your actual inner hunger is for. 
The driving inner hunger that is unconquerable, that you can't get rid of, isn't that you would find something significant. It's that you would be ultimately significant. Otherwise, we wouldn't kill ourselves to make ourselves significant. You can find significance in a hoagie. You, it's not hard to like things. It's not hard. But yet we kill ourselves to take something greater. Why do we do that? Because you can tell yourself you'll be happy with subjective feelings of finding things significant, but you will not. Your desire to believe that you are ultimately significant is unconquerable. Soren Kierkegaard wrote about this, and he said part of our issue here is— Oh, sorry, I'm going to skip that part, too. They're very touching illustrations. Okay. Soren Kierkegaard said it this way. He said, everybody struggles with this hypocritical dichotomy that we can't get rid of, of dread and despair. Here's what he means. He says, all of us are terrified that everything we do ultimately matters. Choice terrifies us. The fact that I could do this or this is terrifying, and it's, it freezes us. And he, there's this one quote by Kierkegaard. He says, he says, whether you do this or that, do either this or that, you'll regret both. Right? But to, to do something, right? You've got to get past the terror that freezes you. Why? Because deep down there's something that says inside of you that everything you do really is ultimately significant. You can't get away from it. It's something you can't not know. Right? And yet, he said, we all also suffer from despair, that we can't actually believe that anything we do is of any ultimate significance. <laughs> you see the problem? On some level, we believe everything we do is ultimate significance, and it terrifies us. And we also can't believe that anything that we do has ultimate significance, and it just—it depresses us. Pascal said, so therefore what we do is we, we deal with our despair and our dread with diversion. They, it's their alliteration, not mine, okay? Or the translators. This is what Pascal says about the diversion. Anyone who does not see the vanity of the world is very vain himself. So who does not see it? apart from young people whose lives are all noise, diversions, and thoughts of the future. But take away their diversions, and you will see them bored to extinction. Then they feel their nullity without recognizing it, for nothing could be more wretched than to be intolerably depressed as soon as one is reduced to introspection with no means of diversion. Now, I want you to notice some of the language here. Andrew Del Banco, I think, is the chair of the American Studies Department at Columbia University. Not a Christian, as far as I know. He says this in one of his writings. In order to live, we have to imagine some purpose to life that transcends our own tiny allotment of days. If we are to escape—now, here's what I want you to notice in both the last quote and this one. That the language of this problem is not direct. It's not like, oh, we know it. It's right. It's in the forefront of our minds. We're constantly psychologically—no. What he's saying is, it's this creeping mold— it's in there. We don't even name it. We're not even sure it's there, but we're constantly acting on it. That's why the insecurity is so obvious. It's unconscious to us, but we can't not know it. It's unconquerable. It's there, and the more we don't deal with it, it just shifts around, and it comes out, and people see it on us, and they don't realize it's coming out of them, and it's quiet, right? He says this, right? Or to escape the sneaking suspicion that all our gaining and spending amounts to little more than fidgeting while we wait for death. I will use the word culture to mean the stories and symbols by which we try to overcome the melancholy suspicion—see that word again?—that we live in a world without meaning. Now think about this. Man, this guy is, he's the chair of American studies at Columbia University, okay? All he teaches about and writes about is culture. And how does he define it? It is the thing we do essentially to divert ourselves from what we all really know that we live in a world without meaning. Now, he and I would agree on this, that it's all that thing that we do that is called culture, that is that diversion, is beautiful, it's meaningful, it's interesting, it's intellectual. In some ways, it's humanizing. And we could go on about all the virtues of it, right? Culture is not a— useless thing. It's not a meaningless thing. It's a, in some ways, it's oftentimes a wonderful thing, but he defines it as the body of things that divert us from the ultimate fear that we are of no significance. And the reason this is important, guys, is because this is actually one of the strongest apologetics for Christian faith. 
there, there is no answer to this question other than that we are made ultimately significant by a creator and a redeemer and a sustainer. Right? 56.5 says this, I will give him within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name. And in Revelation 2.17, Jesus is talking to the churches and he says, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now think about this. Think about how delivered from insecurity you are when you go to heaven and God gives you a little white stone with a name on it. And nobody's, nobody knows what it is. Nobody else knows. Nobody else has to know. You get the stone, you look at the name he gave you, and you go, and that's it. You don't have to prove anything to anybody. Nobody even has to know the name. It's only yours if he gave it to you. You don't have to display it. All you do is read it, and you go, yep. I know exactly what I mean. That has to get handled, and it only gets handled one way. The one who created you and who has redeemed you and has invited you into a new people and has changed everything offers you significance. And no matter what pursuit of significance has unicized your life, whatever false significance, whether it's tragic that you didn't go looking for, like one sort of eunuchs, or whether it was an actual obsession of yours where you actually went after it and it took something from you. <laughs> Either way, whatever you thought you had that you don't have or whatever you do have that's not what you thought it would be, God makes this invitation to anyone who would take my covenant and trust in me and come to me. I will give a name with in this very center of my presence that will be better than whatever it is you thought you were after. Even good things, right? Then the last thing is this, that God promises belonging, which is just as important as significance. Those of, those of us who are introverts would be like, would be like, well, I don't really need people. Okay, introversion and isolation are not the same thing, Okay. Um, there, there's a reason why in almost every place in the world, solitary confinement is a form of torture, right? There are certain points, you know, when my wife raising our four kids who are kind of young right now, where she has pleaded for that for a couple of weeks. But um, that's a different story. Okay. It says this, And to the foreigners, right? It says, I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That is, he says, all the peoples, all the nations, all these people, he said, I will bring them to the place where his presence is, right? Mount Zion, his holy mountain. That's where the temple is. That's where his covenant is cut. That is, that is where he is. And he says, I'm going to bring them all to me, right? And my house will be referred to, you see, right? Referred to as a house of prayer for all nations. That is, people will call it that. Why? Because all nations will go there and pray, and God will apparently listen to them. Right? And there's at least four things that come out of that in terms of what he says. Right? He says he's going to gather them into belonging. Right? Explicitly says that. Two, he says, I will give them joy. Right? They'll be happy. Third is they'll be right with God. He says their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. Right? That is, the sacrifices they make to be made right with me, I will accept them. Right? Because he's already made provision for that in chapter 53. And then fourth, he will listen to them. They will pray, and he'll listen. One of the things that's interesting to think about is how many times in the ministry of Jesus, if you know anything about the ministry of Jesus, was Jesus openly and aggressively violent? How many times, right? Now, he, he stops violence sometimes. He, like, circumvents violence. There are many places he speaks against violence. Not categorically, but systematically, right? There's only one place where Jesus gets straight-up violent. Only one place in the, whole, in the whole New Testament, as far as I can tell. And that is in relationship to this verse. Right? It says in Matthew, Jesus entered the temple area, and he drove out all who were buying there— and selling there, he overturned tables, the tables of the money changers, and the benches of those selling doves. And this is his justification for it. 
It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them, right? See, Jesus had an enormous problem with this passage not being accepted, right? And he wasn't flipping over tables on the inside of the temple. He was doing it in the courts of the temple. He got really upset about the idea that what he said his house would be, a place of belonging for all people, was being cluttered by a place of taking for some people. That really bothered him. That ought to, I think that ought to catch your attention when Jesus is violent one time that's recorded in the, the Gospels, and it's then. He didn't get violent about people wanting to kill him, right? That he puts, he's like, stop, put the knives away, right? But for this, he's flipping over tables, and another passage says he makes a whip, and he's swinging that thing around, right? One guy against I don't know how many, and they were terrified, One of the reasons why you have to—I think we really need to take this as important is because we underestimate how, how badly we need to belong to other people. I think of myself as a very independent person. In fact, I, I told my wife the other day I didn't need her, and she said, that's not as romantic as you think it is. <laughs> and um, I won't go into that right now. Um, but— we like to think of ourselves as consumers and people who move in and out of things and who have a little fence around our lives. And for many of us, we're actually killing ourselves because we say we want community and connectedness, but we won't do what it costs, right? So there's, a, there's a great color video on YouTube where he basically says, they ask him, what do you like, about the, like and dislike about the millennials? He says, I love that they say that they love community. They want to be part of community. And every time I talk about community, they show up. He says, here's what I hate. They won't do what it takes to have it. Because you can't move every two years. You can't make new friends every week. You can't only hang out over digital stuff. You, you got to be there for people when things are terrible. You've got to let people's crap into your life. You've got to let your kids play with kids who are improperly parented. You know I mean, you've got to do all that stuff. You've got to let everybody's crazy in, right? If they feel the same way about you, let me just tell you. I'll just tell you right now, right? They feel the same way about you, Right? And we don't realize how absolutely important it is. And when we get rid of the pleasures and the joys of real belonging, we start chasing what only it can produce in other things, and we end up really hurting each other, right? There's this quote, quote from um, David Brooks from 2010 in the New York Times. He says this, If the relationship between money and well-being is complicated, and it is, that's what he argues in the first part of the article, the correspondence between personal relationships and happiness is not— the daily activities most associated with happiness are making love, socializing after work, and having dinner with others. The daily activity most injurious to happiness is commuting, where you're with people but not with people and hating them, right? According to one study, joining a group that meets even just once a month produces the same happiness gain as doubling your income. According to another, being married produces a psychic gain equivalent to more than $100,000 a year. Sorry, that doesn't apply to you, right? That's—so, of course, what do I have to say? Small groups, anyone? <laughs> right? If you're—if you're, if you're a coworker ever says, well, doesn't your church, like, want you to give a lot of money? Be like, I do actually give my church, but they essentially double my income, so I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> right? But, I mean, one of the reasons we do small groups is because significance and belonging are so integral to who we are, what we have to be, how we need to connect with each other. Your joy in Christ is going to be very much related to your relationships with other Christians and people, and they will be as pleasurable as they are authentic, which will be directly related to how insecure you are or aren't, which is directly related to your ultimate sense of significance that needs to come from Christ. It all builds on each other. And as the church comes together in Acts, we see this. We see that in Acts that they come together around Jesus. And what do they do when things go bad? They pray. And God answers them and shakes the room because the church is his new house. It's a place of prayer for all nations. And then what happens? They take care of each other. They love each other. And then this guy, Joseph, 
sees there's a bunch of people in his church that need help, and so he sells his field and gives the money to the apostles so that they can distribute to people who have need, right? Which is really sacrificially loving, right? And then you know what happened to that guy? Well, he's not a farmer anymore. So he travels for Jesus to Antioch and becomes the first intercontinental Christian missionary to bring the message and the splendor of the new community of Jesus to all nations. Joseph is Barnabas, Paul's first traveling companion. One of the things that you and I need for our own, our own personal faith, for us to be the people we were meant to be, and to be part of God's people the way we were meant to be, you got to realize this. The people that live in significance and belonging are people who no longer live for significance and belonging. When your significance and your belonging comes from Christ, that you belong to him and that you're significant in him, then you are no longer living for it. And people who aren't living for it create it. Because when you're not living for it, you live for the thing that's most significant, the truth. And how the truth should be lived out, justice. You live for those things, and what happens to your life? It begins to feel a whole lot more significant. Not because those things made you significant. Jesus made you significant. You could stop living for significance. You could start living in significance. You could start living for the truth and the justice it produces, and you'll begin to feel much more significant and create something of significance. And what will happen from that health and the insecurity that begins to go away is belonging. The richest, most powerful, most joy-filled, most pleasurable belonging that God has ever created to exist outside of Directly with him himself for eternity Which we will have with those people It's not gonna be just us and jesus at a cafe forever. It's gonna be the whole lot of us Let's pray Father um, There's so much in these 50s chapters and I pray that you would you would drive deep into our remembering in our conceiving of these things Who you are what you are what this gospel is to recognize that 2700 years ago 700 years before christ was ever born you laid out The gospel like this And so we pray father for the miracle of you helping us believe it To not usurp power and to not grind our power on other people, to live for justice, to live for Sabbath, to do it because we're part of your covenant, we trust and believe in you. And so that the insecurity of our needed significance and belonging would go away, that we'd find it in you, and that through that, you would so adorn us with a beauty, a splendor, that it would be for the good of all people. And for the glory of your name, that your name would be known and seen and respected and loved for what it is. And that when we worship you, whether it's going to, that we sing right now, or whether it's every action of our life, that we would live out of your significance and belonging in real faith. We pray that it would be a beautiful thing to all people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.